This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. We are talking remotely with Jaga Wise in London, East London. Welcome to the podcast, Jaga. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Jaga is head brewer at Wildcard Brewery in East London. You can also find her on Channel 5's wine show from time to time. BBC R4 is the food program. Beer Masters on Amazon Prime. And she's got a book called Wild Brews that's out June 28th here in the United States. Uh, it's uh, great to talk to you, Jaga. It's, it's also my debut American podcast, so I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> it's exciting. You've uh, you know built a media career in the UK and uh, have helped bring the idea of beer and brewing and that craft approach to, to making beer out to a broader popular audience. Um, very cool things that you're doing there, but even there as you're within your role as head brewer at Wildcard, you're making some creative beers, making a lot of IPA. Apparently that's uh, that's what a lot of what the uh, the audience wants from you, but you've also been able to carve out some space for fruited beers, wild beers, farmhouse style beers, and uh, you know even, even table beers. So we're gonna talk about some of those approaches to brewing. Uh, you've got a New England style IPA in hand, which I just find mind blowing to see UK breweries making New England style IPAs and then bringing it back. And of course now doing it with UK hops. We're gonna talk about some of those approaches to brewing that you're engaging in. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, G&D Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks, along with lower global warming potential. G&D Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy-efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG and RAR Malting Company, the home of Fossil Free Malt. RAR's headquarters in Shakopee, Minnesota is powered by renewable electricity. Malt houses and kilns are fed by an electrostatic boiler fueled by agricultural byproducts, much of which is waste from the malting process. By eliminating the use of natural gas, RAR Malting Company reduces CO2 emissions by 260,000 tons per year while filling 25% of the U.S. brewing industry's malt needs. Put the power of RAR Malt in your beer at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact dash us. So, Jaga, we normally start off the podcast talking about your background. So I'm curious, what were, uh, what does that arc through the world of beer look like for you? Where was that moment where you thought, uh, you know, this this approach to beer is something I'm I'm very interested in? And then, how did that develop into I need to follow this as a career? I really wish it was as a romantic. <laughs> Honestly, it was many, 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 many pints is the honest answer to that question. And then, then you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I could do this for a job. And then you, then you just kind of fall into it, don't you? So, um, I was studying engineering at uni, uh, chemical engineering, all the while, um, this is in the Midlands in, uh, Loughborough, which is next to Nottingham, where I'm from. And the Midlands in the UK is like, it's like the home of, um, especially like pale cask beer, lots of mild around there as well. It's down the road from a quite famous place um, in the UK, Beerosphere. Do you know Burton on Trent? Uh, which is yes, kind of like, of it's, it, it's very famous. So it's just down the road from there. Um, so it's very, very famous for being, uh, for having amazing cask beer. So it's just what you do when you're young. You just hang out, you hang out in the pub. Um, and I was at uni studying engineering and we were kind of home brewing and I didn't put the two and two together. It was just something we used to go to beer festivals all the time and um, just hang out really. And then fast forward a number of years later, I, I moved to London, didn't really have much of a plan. I was working in uh, chemical trading, buying and selling chemicals at the time. I'd done a couple of years uh, working in water treatment, which very handy later, but didn't realize it at the same time. Uh, and then I just really didn't like my job. So I quit my job with no plan. 
got a job in a pub. And then uh, the same friends who I used to hang around with and go to beer festivals with and homebrew with, they were like, you know what? We're thinking of start- starting a brewery. And I was like, oh, I only had a part-time job in a pub. So I was like, oh, I'll, oh, I'll help you. And then it was like, give it here. <laughs> and then that was it. That was 10 years ago. <laughs> so it's not a particularly romantic story. Um, and it's just, one, it's just one of those things. The more, the more you're in it, the more you love it, the more you love it, you, the more you learn about it um, and you gain more and more knowledge. And then, um, yeah, it's it's um, just to work in beer to say that you can do it for your job. It's a pretty amazing thing, I think. Sure, sure. Now, you all built a brewery in a area where, you know, at that point, you know, pub beers are the, the go-to thing, but you all have struck out with a different beer program. Talk to me about imagining you know, this different approach to brewing where you are? Well, I mean, if you look at it, so when we first started in 2012, Wildcard Brewery, that is. So at at the time in the capital, there were, I'm talking a couple of years before that, maybe 2020, 2009, there were about 10 breweries in London. So now as we speak, there are about 110 so that gives you an idea of the growth in a really, really short space of time. So when we first started the brewery, it felt like loads of breweries were, were opening. That's because they were. They were opening on a, like a weekly basis across the country. So the UK went through a, a massive, massive um, beer boom. And it's kind of insane to be around that energy, to be around that excitement. It's quite an inspiring thing to be a part of. And it's it's quite interesting, even now. So we're seen as like one of the older <laughs> of, of, of the new wave of brewers, which is quite fun. But yeah, so we were brewers from the Midlands. So we were cast brewers. So that's what we did for the first few years. Um, we, didn't, we didn't even have a brewery. We didn't have any money from quite poor backgrounds in the Midlands. Um, so we started out the first like year or so as um, cuckoo brewers. So we were brewing on another uh, brewer's kit, buying that, selling it, buying it, selling it. Um, and then we got our, our bar together. And then we put, we got a bar and our brewery pretty much at the same time. And then it was open top fermentation, six barrel kits, uh, lots of casks, lots of bottles. Our first beer was a beer called the Jack of Clubs, which was a ruby red ale. So in hindsight, incredibly traditional in hindsight. But yeah, it's 2022 now. And so. then that evolved. <laughs> it's 2022 now. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just the way it is. Talk I to mean, me about that evolution then. Uh, so the evolution really is, um, so we started out making a ruby red ale. And for most breweries, that is unheard of to make that as your first ever beer. And then we added our Queen of Diamonds IPA, which is very, very popular in East London, incredibly popular. Um, but it was like, I remember the first batch of it, IVU was way too high. We were cookie brewing it in um, in the, uh, in a place called Essex, not a place called Essex, in a, a place called Brentwood Brewery in Essex. And in hindsight, I don't know if you know a brewery called Burnt Mill Brewery, um, but they're quite a well-known- a brewery here and um, it was a lady called Sophie Durand and she really like taught me the physical side of like how to brew like this is what you do this is the kind of stuff you do you won't read it in any books but do x y and z um and yeah so we did that then we were like our customers were asking for lager so like okay gotta figure out how to make a lager (laughs) so we made some of that um and then it just kind of it just kind of developed and then i remember the first conical tank we got the first conical tank it was like oh my god eureka moment um so it's always been really interesting and when you work with open top fermenters that's always there's always a little bit of exchange with the outside world anyway um so it's it's always it it was kind of an interesting journey an interesting development and then we got more conicals and then we then we crowdfunded and moved sites um and yeah so kind of the beers the beers kind of developed quite organically to be honest um where do you so nowadays you're I assume brewing on a much larger system, brewing in a, you know, in a, what is your, what is your typical brew program now look like? And what do you brew the most of? What do you, people want the most of from you? 
So what's really interesting is there's not a huge amount that's changed. So we now brew on a 12 barrel system. It's 100% manual, which is um ouch. It's it's challenging. It's really challenging because now we're now it's like half a ton of grain that that we need to get in. Um so it's incredibly challenging. Um we have a chiller system, a glycol chiller system, so so that's automated. Um, but it's a really simple single infusion system. Honestly, it's a lot of fun to brew on. You, I can make, and I'm sure my German counterparts would argue with me, and probably my American counterparts would argue with me too. But I can make 99.999% on my simple single infusion um, brew kit. I don't need any bells and whistles. Like... I'm a big believer in that you don't need all the fancy equipment to make really great beer. And it's one of the things, so I've, I've recently, and, and you probably can talk about the book later, but I've recently um, written a book. And in the book, I just use the boil in a bag, um, the brew in a bag system. Just like you really, I, I just, I find it so unnecessary. And one of the things that gets me so irritated is the, when people put up barriers to other people entering the beer space. Like it, you really don't need all the bells and whistles. Obviously, it's nice. Of course, I, I would love to. Um, sure, uh, sure. I would love to have to have all the bells and whistles. But we all know cra- a beer, craft beer, it's a slim margin game, isn't it? So uh, I'm quite happy on right. my uh, twelve barrel kit um, and uh, cracking out good beers on it. You can drive a luxury automobile or you can drive an inexpensive uh, automobile and they'll both get you to the same place. One may be a little more comfortable and easy to get <laughs> you there, um, but they will both get you there. Just, you know, one might take a little more work. Anyway, let's uh, I want to pivot and talk about some of these beers that you make, because, uh, you know, that is abs- that's what we do right here on the podcast. Talk about your approach to you know both the creative and the technical processes behind those beers. Before we do that. Is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients? Historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends, which mimic straight concentrates but at a better price point and with a more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Arrived Mobile Point of Sale powers places with personality. Arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love by hospitality professionals. No contracts and no monthly fees make Arrived a no-brainer for your craft business. Go to arrive.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo that's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash CBB. A different kind of POS has arrived. So, Jago, let's talk about the the beers that you brew now. Like I said at the, the top, uh, if you look at Untapped, for better or worse, uh, the top 19 of 20 rated beers on Untapped are all IPAs or pale ales and something <laughs> in that family. So, Clearly, clearly your fans love your hoppy beers. Um, the book that you've written in Wild Brews is about, about brewing wild, spontaneous, funky farmhouse and fruited beers. Um, the second most checked in beer was a 2.7% table beer. And so you're clearly brewing across the spectrum here. But let's, uh, you know, let's dive into, you know, brewing and and. Uh, you know, talk about your favorite style of beer to brew. What would you consider your favorite? It's like choosing between my children. <laughs> I don't have what, any children. What's the first of your favorites? What's the first of um, your favorite of your many favorites? Um, I'll tell you one of the beers that I, I do really like are two point seven percent table beer. It is it, it it's gorgeous. And um, so where we are in the in the in in London, right? So we have a brewery called the Colonel. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Colonel, but but sure. but, but they are like I've um, heard of the Colonel. They are they were one of the revolutionaries in the UK. Um, they they were one of the first breweries to really do like modern hop forward beers here, and they have a beer called the Table Beer, and it was a very much an argument in the brewery. Like if we make a beer only if it is good enough, are we allowed to call it that? Because the second you call it Table Beer, it's automatic comparisons with Colonel. Um, so I mean, it's a beer we've worked a really long time on. It's a beer that's won us many awards, which is really cool. 
um, and it's a beer that's sold um, really well for us. But just because I love to drink it, I love to drink it just because because I don't forget over here we drink a, we we drink beers by the pints. Um, and so you want to be on a night out and you want to get into the six, seven pints drink, if that makes sense. And a table beer allows you to sure, to sure. kind of partake in that and do that. So um, that's one of the beers I really love. It was also really, it was really difficult to work out the recipe on that one. Um, and I've said it's, it's the Let's recipe. Let's talk about your approach to this. Mm, mm. <laughs> what are the what are the parameters of this beer? Okay, so the oh, from top of my head, you're, you asked me how, a few how are you questions. fermenting it? How yeah. are you how do you build this beer? Yeah, how do the thing is, it's the beer I most get asked about commercially, and it's the beer I'll take the recipe to my grave. So <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the exact <laughs> details, um, but it is it is a beer that is a high starting gravity. It is um, a high uh, finish gravity on it. Um, we use a particular yeast in order to accommodate that, and um, and and then we dry hop it. Uh, we double dry hop it. Um, but yeah, no, the grist bill is one that that took us a while to to to, to work out. I'm normally the least cagey person. Ask ever, but this one beer <laughs> to my grave. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but this is is this a a uk or belgian style table beer or is this a in that kind of farmhouse tradition or is no, this uh, no it's not you know, far, a different it's not, approach to table beer yeah so it's not farmhouse tradition because when we think about table beer here in the u.s we would table beer would would probably be assumed to be in that belgian tradition yeah so which is perfectly fine which is perfectly fine so i mean here so it's 2.7 percent so it's sessionable the kind of beer you would stick on the table um here it it and it can totally mean um, uh, the kind of more more traditional uh, Belgian style, absolutely. But in this instance, it's not. It's it's very much like it's very hazy. It's like a um, like a really tiny New England pale, but small. Um, oh. The goal is I don't want anybody to be able to be like, oh, two point seven percent. Oh, it tastes like 2.7%. My goal is I want people to think they're drinking a hazy, hoppy, rounded, like 4.5% beer. And that's the goal of it. If you can tell it's 2.7%, I've not done my job right. So this is fascinating then. You know, in the United States, that 4.5% beer would be the session beer, the the beer that is much lower alcohol and more drinkable than the other beers. And you are taking it down from there into the 2.7% range with a hazy and hoppy table beer. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things that when, when I've traveled to the US, I'm always shocked by how strong everything is. Everything is so strong. Um, but then when I went into a bar and I saw the kind of bar culture is quite different. Um, number one, the beers are smaller like smaller bit like physically um so it's right right correct me if i'm wrong it's more like schooner size is that more correct a 12 ounce pour you know would be like 330 centiliter okay so so yeah, for, yeah okay. Sorry, 33 centiliter 33 okay so we're so a pint is what five six eight mil um so what's that 50 yeah 56.8 centiliter right so um so right it's it's very normal here, especially with cask beer, to drink a lot higher volume but much lower ABV. So um, when when you go to the pub, for example, you'll order a mild. A mild is typically between three and a half and like four percent. That that but you'll have you'll have several of them. Um, and sure. yeah, no, it's just I I, I found the whole the difference in drinking culture to be quite large, even though the people in the UK and the US, obviously we speak the same language. Um, it is, it is very, very different um, in terms of just like, like pub culture generally and like bar culture, um, which is, it's absolutely fascinating. But yes, I find the drinks very, very strong in the US. <laughs> well, without giving away all of your secrets on this, um, you know, building body and building something to support that kind of hoppy flavor and that expression of hops in a beer that small is a challenge that every brewer yeah absolutely faces are there some you know techniques or approaches that you take 
you know that you could tell me without giving up uh, all, all of your secrets that, yeah i mean uh, you I know think how you do that i think it's obvious for like professional brewers and i know lots listen to your show i mean it's all about how do you build body and it's the question all of us are trying to do all the time whenever we make these like thick juicy beers and it's the same thing it's oats it's wheat it's high high mash temperatures um it's it, it it's those same techniques. It's not any different. Um, it's your, make sure you get your grain selection. Um, so there's lots and lots of body in there. Um, make sure you mash in super hot. Obviously we, me, me, me with my single infusion mash, I'm looking at 69 to 70 degrees. Like we're talking about like borderline, a problem, right? Um, and right. we're talking about yeast that will not finish all the way. So you have a nice sweetness. I've pretty much told you. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, so, and then you have to be really, really clean. Um, because obviously uh, in our brewery, we've, we've got, it's a very, it's a very simple kit. We don't really get, with that simplicity, what happens is you don't get a huge amount that goes that wrong if that makes sense and every problem i've ever had i've had it 20 times before does that make sense so it's like almost everything i can solve in like a second not i can tell i can think about solving it sure. in a um um but but we but we've also got a canning line etc etc um we've got a great canning line um from, from a company in the uh, who are based in the uk um and just everything has to be just super clean um, you don't want any nasties getting in there, basically. Sure, sure. At that kind of uh, low alcohol level, making sure that hop expression is smooth but also clear is incredibly important. Um, you know, talk to me about both selecting hop varieties for that kind, you know, that will express well in that kind of beer, as well as any techniques that you use to kind of make sure that those convey in a, a smooth but also bright way you know what was extra challenging it, it was it's not so much the table beer so over christmas uh this new year i did a 0.5 percent right beer um and it's really really similar in technique to the table beer except it's a little bit even hotter than that um in terms of mash but that was specifically difficult to get the hop expression to be bright and zingy and not overwhelming because when 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 we're talking about super low abv it pulls the bitterness you get from the hops and and especially from the dry hop and i know everyone says you know get dry hop from bitterness rubbish <laughs> rubbish this idea of perceived bitterness is totally anyway i i digress um but that was particularly difficult to get the balance right because if you are to dry hop beers that low abv in the same way you would um one with more alcohol to support it you'd be just way off the mark um like it has to actually be considerably less hops um, and you have to be just cautious about where you use them, when you use them and going against your instinct and like dry hopping it less um, because the the amount of um, perceived bitterness you, you pull through at those low ABV levels, um, especially 0.5% is, is, is considerably higher. So it's, um, it's cer certainly a challenge. So not 0.5, this is a what we would consider a non-alcoholic yeah, beer absolutely, if it's yeah. below 0.5 ABV. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, as I, I, we have just tasted a few of those because we're working on our IPA issue right now. And, you know, I, I can think about that in two ways. Number one, having al alcohol improves extraction. Mm-hmm. And so having that much less alcohol that could actually inhibit extraction in a bit. But on the flip side, the one thing I've noticed is just how tea-like most of the hop expression gets in beers as they are that low ABV, you know, non-alcoholic ABV. Or, um, you know, how do you, because without that sweetness or some sort of, you know, body more body to that beer. It it, uh, it doesn't help the fruitiness or or convey of those kinds of hops. How how do you work around that? 
It's a challenge. No, it's a it's a real challenge. No, it is. Um, so the beer we made in the New Year's, we were lucky enough to make it in a collaboration with a brewery called Nirvana Brewery, who specialise in alcohol free. So um, it's one of the great things about beer. Everyone's always learning, right? So anyway, um, they they came and it was really. They have some very interesting malt techniques. Um, so as I, basically the secret is extremely hot <laughs> at mash. That's the general <laughs> secret, extremely hot, um, but like hotter than you would think. You know, the kind of hot that makes you sweat. Oh, I think I'm going to denature everything. Like hotter than that, basically. Um, then uh, then when, when it came to, to the hopping, we used our usual hopping technique, but we just paired everything just considerably down. We also made sure that the beer had quite a heavy, I, I use the word heavy lightly, quite heavy bitterness for a low ABV beer, just because we need some protection um, in the beer. And... Um, when we're talking about 0.5% beer, unfiltered, um, being made on, on, on a 12 barrel scale. So we're talking about a 2000 liter scale on our canning line in a room where there is, we make beers all the time. We have a bar in there. There's going to be bits in the air. You know what I mean? Uh, so we really wanted to make sure that we had that kind of, um, just the hop, the hops in order to give the beer some protection. Um, and then we peered down our dry hop considerably. And then we just did techniques like um, normally we would move the beer uh, off the hops in, into, a, into a conditioning tank after we've uh, fermented. So we were really concerned about doing that just because, and I know ev- everyone cleans their brewery to bits, of course they do, but just the very nature of a 0.5 is, is, is quite scary. So we just worked really hard to keep everything contained in primary tank and not move it. Typically we would do inline carbonation, um, but we chose not to do that. Uh, we instead carbonated via top pressure because we're like, it's safer. Um, even though I am 99.9999999% sure there's nothing in my carb stone, when you're making beers like this, that you have to really bear those things in mind. Um, and then we and then we can. So I don't know, I've, I've lost the question. <laughs> But uh, that that was how we made it. That that was how we made it, and it was called um, it was called it was called a mosaic IPA, and it was 0.5 percent, and it was um, it was glorious, absolutely glorious. It's good that you mentioned that. I was having a conversation about that with uh, Bill Schufelt, the one of the founders of Athletic Brewing Company, who was a non-alcoholic brewer here in the United States, over at the Craft Brewers Conference, and uh, he was bringing that up, which is a point that I hadn't considered. And it's exactly what you mentioned that uh, food safety becomes a very big issue, especially with non-alcoholic beers. They don't have the benefit of of that alcohol to kill bacteria potential. Uh, beer spoilers and uh, you know and and so uh, it's a huge issue yeah Um, and it's something you you have to think about constantly you have to think about it constantly like just making sure okay especially when you come from a unfiltered um kind of side of brewing like 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 we're we're not sticking this through um filters that will filter out the bacteria or filter out anything else like this this will go out to the public as is um so and i think working with haze generally i think there's good haze and there's bad haze so we always want it to be on the right side of haze um so just making sure that that's the case and we we don't want to make anyone yeah yeah food food safety is just paramount to making um to making these kind of beers there's good haze and there's bad haze. I want to unpack that statement. But before we do, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken the technology they invented, working with world-renowned industry veterans, and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. 
So UK brewers for a long time were using all of these yeasts that American brewers making hazy uh, IPA eventually discovered where they could make them this hazy. Now, of course, most UK brewers were not trying to make those beers hazy. They were trying to make bright beers and, uh, you know, using techniques to then uh, to clarify those beers. Um, talk to me about this idea now that there's good haze and bad haze. Absolutely. So the kind of haze that you get when you've messed up a mash. Uh, don't forget, my kit is 100% manual. So it's very, very independent on the skill of the individual brewer that's working that day. So it's like it's it's my job to make sure that we're all doing exactly the same thing over and over and over again. But if someone does something stupid, like let a load of malt into the kettle, bad haze. <laughs> Um, you, um, you, um, you, um, you, um, know what I mean. Um, if the person who's running the canning line, um, if there's loads of yeast going into package, bad haze, you, you know what I mean? You want, you want a lovely, a nice hot haze is lovely. You can usually tell the difference physically, visually. I don't want chunks in my beer. I don't want physical leaves in my beer. Right, um, right. I don't want to be on the toilet after I drink my beer because you've left too much yeast in package. Um, so it's it's about getting that balance right. And that balance at times can be tricky, especially when we're fighting against our good old friend, Gravity, who wants to pull a beer bright constantly. Um, so it is incredibly challenging to get a stable haze, um, one that will last the entire shelf life of the beer. Um, and it's something that, that comes with practice and it's something that comes with time, something that comes with knowing your yeast selections and your yeast combinations. Um, I'm a big fan of blending yeast, of I use this yeast for the, for this personality trait, I use this yeast for this personality trait. You know what it's like. I mean, you work in bear, you know what it's like. You you just get to know your, you get to know the ingredients you're working with, you get to know the materials you're working with, you get to know their yeast, their personalities, their likes, their dislikes. The sure. same with all of your ingredients across the board. Um, and just like playing with them and stretching them and seeing how far you can push them. And sometimes that was too far. <laughs> <laughs> you have to wind, wind back a bit, but it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's largely a trial and error process, really. Sure, sure. No, the goal is what these you know protein polyphenol complexes that uh, you know are small enough to stay uh, in solution within these beers. Um, I you think, mentioned. I, I think. I think largely. You know. You know what it comes down to. Largely, I think when you look at a beer, and like we spend a lot of time. Like, like talking about it and and analyzing it and and getting educated to the highest of degrees about it and and all this sort of stuff and all your ingredients and all the latest stuff that's happening around the world. I think the question, the fundamental question, has to be: Does this taste nice? <laughs> I think that's the fundamental question when we make anything. Um, does this look nice? Is this appealing to my eyes? So. The kind of haze that is inviting, is welcoming, that makes you want to pick it up, that kind of golden hue, that's what you want. The kind of dirty brown or like grayish haze that, that it's just, it's, it's not an inviting thing to, to, to consume. So, I mean, does it taste nice? I, I think that probably leads my brewing <laughs> in every which way, but, uh, but there you go. But making that attractive haze, I imagine, involves two things. Number one, selecting the right kind of malt you know, so that it will look attractive there. And, you know, I imagine it also involves controlling oxygen through the brewing process, you know, so that, uh, you know, you're not dulling down the, the color of that. What are some of those, you know, processes that you use and, you know, you know, some of those levers that you pull to, to make sure that even if it is hazy, that it's a very attractive haze? So we're very lucky over here that um, we have quite incredible maltsters over here. So um, dare I say some of the rest in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Cheeky comments. Hey. Um, I know I'm doing. I'm doing fighting. I talk. would expect you. I would expect <laughs> you to support your home team. <laughs> um, so 
I mean, a, a lot of problems can be avoided by simply working with a reputable maltster. Um, so someone you work with, someone you trust, um, when, when you have issues and you do, and, and every brewer knows like seasonally, you do have issues at certain times of the year. So here we tend to get, uh, malt tends to go a bit funny around about January time um, I'm over here. So j- just kind of keep just being seasonal and like looking at what's going on, looking at what's in the market, looking at the players and really knowing your maltster. Um, I think the other thing is, of course, oxygen, absolutely oxygen. So one of the things that we um, we spent our money on basically is we bought an Anton Parr machine. So the Anton Parr machine tells us um, our our dissolved oxygen and it tells us our CO2 levels. And that is the machine that is probably the workhorse of the brewery. It gets the most yeast. So, um, so our, our goal, no matter what we're doing, is to get obviously as low oxygen pickup as possible before it goes... Um, into cans, so in tank, just making sure everything is 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 where it needs to be with regards to that. And I think that I think that simple piece of equipment has probably made the biggest difference um, to the whole brewery and making sure the output is quality. But but I'm going to say a but on this. Um, for a number of years, we didn't have a. Um, an Anton Paul or, or, or money for that. And I think the skills of like knowing how, how and when something is carbonated without machinery, I think is something can often be overlooked and just knowing just the feel of it, the look of it, like, like how the bubbles are, um, how tight they are, how loose they are, um, to kind of being, be, being able to gauge whether that beer is where it needs to be. Um, I think is important. Um, you can do a huge amount without equipment, but having an Anton Parr has been the best thing I ever did. <laughs> Be the best. Is, oh, it's amazing! I love it. Sure. <laughs> but yes, no. All all the things you're love, all talking about. I absolutely. love watching brewer brewer Instagram accounts where they're posting readings off of their Anton Parr machines of dissolved oxygen. It's uh, it's the, one of the best uses of social media that I've found so far <laughs> you know what i've never done um, it actually but i probably have some for a few on there actually but you know what it is it's see? like it's like so, so, uh, sometimes you're just so proud like i mean you know we're like i think there was one i think we got like four ppb of like dissolved oxygen and we were all like just so proud and that message went around the brew team only the brew team because no one else in the team gives a toss but it goes around the brew team like will the public care i don't know i, I don't know that i don't know that they would or it'd be our most liked post, but it's uh, something we care about. <laughs> At least your brewer friends would also understand. True, true. Well, you mentioned earlier that you love to uh, co-pitch different yeasts, you know, multiple yeasts when you're brewing this. And again, I didn't expect for us to talk about pale ale uh, as long as we have on this podcast, but it's it's interesting to get this perspective from, uh, you know, from you on this. Talk to me about your approach to co-pitching, you know, pitching together multiple yeasts uh, in these beers. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I've learned the okay. hard way um, when it doesn't. Um, but there are some combinations that I just really, really love. One of them, so I'm, I'm talking specifically from like a, a, a dried perspective. Um, so you can pitch together the New England and Windsor yeast works really, really well. Um, you can pitch together, I'll tell you what doesn't- you're using, you're using dried yeasts? I'm talking about dried yeast here. Um, you can pitch together, okay. Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying to think. I've, I've tried so many over the years, <laughs> and what, I, what I'm, I'm mainly looking for is characteristics that I'm looking for from one yeast and another, and seeing if I can get them to work in unison, and seeing, seeing, seeing if I can get the benefits of both of those. Yeah, it's it's really quite straightforward. Which which combinations which have worked and which have not worked? I'll tell you which one which doesn't work well together. USO five and the New England yeast. So the Lalamand New England yeast, terrible combination. Because what happened is the Lalamand New England, <laughs> the Lalamand New England, um, if anyone's ever, ever worked with it, terrible lag phase, absolutely awful. Can take like, 
up to 48 hours to like get its act together and like start munching on some sugar right um and then you have uso5 again uso5 is not the fastest yeast but it it does the job cleanly right but there are other yeasts if you want to get if if, if you want to get it going quickly um there are other yeasts that will do a better job so the uso5 kicks off and does its work and um the new england yeast really really struggles behind it and almost every time we brewed with it and, and i made a beer with it where i had to make um you know you make a beer it tastes delicious you sell it to a customer the customer says oh i'll have x amount of that and you're like oh okay that one-off brew okay fantastic and then suddenly you have to make it 20 times in a row <laughs> And we discovered uh, that problem on uh, with that yeast combination on our 20 times. I think it was like brew number 15 or something um, where we were getting continuous stuck ferments. But um, but yeah, no, they're not friends. But uh, but you just learn from experience and some some yeast combos are nice, some yeast combos aren't. So some, some brewers may not do this at all um, and they may think I'm talking out of my backside, but um, it's a lot of fun and just kind of play with their personalities and see what comes out. How do you manage then repitching within the commercial brew house, especially when you are blending yeast like that? Do you then yeah. start fresh you know, with each batch um, because they'll work at different phases. They'll out, one will outcompete the other generally. And after multiple generations, it, it's a different balance and, and won't operate the same kind of way. How, how do you manage around that? Yeah, um, I I'm, I honestly don't do a huge amount of repitching in our brewery, so um, mm. we we don't have a yeast lab set up in our brewery. So um, the constraints that we have within the um, uh, the setup that that we have is that's not something that we currently do. It's something that we'll be doing within the next six to eight months. I'm going to say. Um, but for us, it's a massive, massive cost saving, potentially, obviously. Um, so ask me again in six to eight months and I'll, I'll answer that question for you. <laughs> Sounds fair. Well, let's let's uh, change subjects here and talk about brewing wild and funky and farmhouse and fruited beers. Uh, you know, certainly that's the subject of the book that you've just written. And it's something that, uh, you know, obviously the, the topic is of interest to you. You you make fruiting be fruited beers across the sour spectrum, longer sour beers as well as shorter production sour beers. Uh, you know, more kettle sour approach or quick soured approaches. Um, talk to me, a, a, you know, about the you know how you've structured this kind of wild approach, you know, to brewing and and uh, what you find yourself drawn to and some of the ways that you've chosen to make some of those beers. So I'm very lucky, and I think we're very lucky here in the UK in that we are just down the road from Belgium. Um, so for us, it is literally well acr across a channel. But yes, <laughs> I guess you can take a, a train there. You're this right. is what I was going to say. Like no one's getting across the. Everyone's going on the train to to um, to Belgium. Yeah. So it's literally you go to King's Cross, um, and where the brewery is in Walthamstow, we are 12 minutes to King's Cross on the tube. Right, so you go to King's Cross. Admittedly, it's a lot harder since Brexit. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> but anyway, you get on the train and you and you're in Belgium, and they make the best sour beers. They make the best wild beers, the best funky beers in the entire globe. Um, so, so to even have them as as neighbours and to even have them as close, I'm, I'm aware of just how um, how in awe and how lucky we are here. Um, so, with regards to the book um the whole idea of the book was um making wild beers from beginner to expert that, that was kind of my tagline um and it was the journey that i set out on when i first started making these beers there's so much information you need to know um there's so much practical information you need to know and it's quite hard to find it all in one place um, so I decided to basically to write the book that I would have wanted to read <laughs> when I started out in this journey. And it's geared towards homebrewers. So there's a whole homebrewing section in there that talks about different recipes and and how to make these beers with your brew in a bag method and 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 what have you. But I've spent a huge amount of time um talking about like working with wood. Um what happens when you 
get a barrel that's in terrible condition practically like what do you do day one like what chemical combination do you use to bring that back um I've spent a lot of time talking about fruits. Um, I spent a huge amount of time working with lots of different fruits, and my 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 general um, my, my 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 general opinion of just working with fruits generally is just they all have their own. I'm going to use the word personality again. They all have their own um, uh, ways they like to be worked. They all have their own. Um, uh, PHs they like to express themselves best at, um, and the way you figure this out is by is 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 by doing it. The way you figure out dosing rates is by doing it. So hopefully I've kind of I've put some dosing rates in there as well. I spent a huge amount of time talking about water <laughs> here. I'm in London. We have the most high alkalinity water. It's just shocking to work with to try and make a lager with this water is just horrible. Um, there's not many books out there from a UK perspective that has, um, okay, if you're in London, your water looks like this. If you're in Cornwall, if you're in Scotland, your water probably looks like this. And this, these are the steps you, you need to be taking. Um, so that, that, that was kind of the, the focus. I spent a lot of time talking about um, dry hopping and different dry hopping techniques because we, we talk a lot about Kvike beers um, in the book as well. So... Um, yeah, it's just, and obviously we're down the road from bloody Belgium. So where they make gerzes and they make lambics and they make, well, lambics, gerzes, where they make just amazing things. So I, I am four years into my own um, program. Um, I've, I've got some release in the market. So I've, I've got our Cuvée Saison that's uh, been released in the market, which is being received amazingly. And I have got all of my, my, Gerzes, um, I which has been aged three different years, so three year, two year, one year, um, sure. with a fresh sprightly little thing blended in as well. Um, also, 2018, which in the UK was like the best year ever for grapes. I had half a Walthamstow calling me saying, Jake, I've got some grapes. Do you want them? And I, was like, ah, I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but I'll take them. So I made some wine and um, some of the girls has been sat on the wine as well. So it's E17, so London grown grapes in Rioja barrels, has been aged for a long time, has been bottled, they're in champagne bottles, have been in bottles for the last... Um, well, it must be the last eight months or so. So um, I'm, I'm just kind of waiting. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm holding my, uh, I'm like waiting to drop that on the market. But our, our cuvee saison has just dropped. Um, I make a lot of saisons as well. Let's so. talk about that cuvee. Yeah. Let's talk about that cuvee saison. Um, you know, what is your general approach to that beer? Are you modeling it after, you know, some archetypes within that? And then, you know, is this a mixed fermentation saison with a, a culture with Britannomyces as well as Saccharomyces and maybe other things, you know, then, you know, if it is, how do you approach that and how have you built that culture yeah. in order to, to make this beer in an ongoing way? Yeah. So, so this, the, the, this beer particularly, what's interesting about this beer, the Cuvée Saison. So this is a beer that is, was actually made to be the young sprightly blend to go into the uh, several years of Lambics I had basically. And this beer tasted so good on its own that we've released it on its own. So this is t like on, like on paper, this is a um, a mixed fermentation beer, um, and it is a saison based. It's incredibly um, sour, so it it soured beautifully, um, and. To say it's gorgeous is, what is, is an understatement. Acidity, what is your acidity goal? Acidity goal, for, always. Uh, three point, titratable acidity yeah. or, or three, pH. 3.1, always. Always. And it's a bugger because it lies to you. Never go off taste. I always test it. Never, ever go off taste. It lies to you. On all my sours, it's always 3.1. The, the last thing I ever want to hear from anybody is, oh, it's not sour enough. <laughs> So what is it about 3.1 versus 3.2, 3.3? Obviously, this is a, what, a logarithmic scale, and so 3.1 is rather acidic. It is rather acidic. Um, but I, I'm, not talking about, um, I'm not talking about the cuvee. So that, that, 
gets to what it gets to. It's a mixed firm. It is, um, it's its own beast. I'm talking about uh, kettle sours, fruit sours. Um, it, it's typically my my goal um, to get it down to, to 3.1. I find a bit higher than that. It can be a little bit flabby. But as I said before, each personality, each fruit has its own little personality, doesn't it? So working with the acidity that comes from the fruit as well, I think is super, is, is super important and bearing that in mind. So we do a lime berliner vice. And that is obviously just huge, huge amounts of acidity that comes from, from the lime. And like making that work um, with like a lactic base, uh, base acidity is like a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And making sure that... Um, that acid is under control <laughs> is also a, a, a lot of work. But I mean, these beers are just, are so unbelievably fun and um, working with ghosts and like we make a lot of ghosts. So um, uh, our passion fruit ghosts is probably our best selling um, in terms of in the sour space. Um, like I make a huge amount of it. And with that, you have to work with salt and making sure the salt expresses itself. And I always say, if a ghost tastes salty, there's too much salt. But how do you know how much salt to add into a ghost? So it's just something that we've been working on for a long time. I've been making that beer for a long time. But again, it, like it all started at homebrew level. Like like the passion fruit ghost is a homebrew beer sure. that I made at homebrew and then and and scaled up commercially. How do you work when as you are? thinking about this quick sour method using yeah. fruit in those that has differing acidities within that fruit. How do you, you know, do you, are you working on a kind of calculation process? Are you, you know, what are you blending different amounts of these things? Um, you know, you're, you're blending not just acidity, but also fruit flavor and trying to uh, achieve that. Of course, pH can impact the expression of that fruit flavor itself um, and should be in a specific pH area in order to, to convey and be able to be read on the palate as that fruit? Mm, I think it's a mixture. It's a mixture of all, all, all sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm now opening our oaf juice, which is our berry sour as we're, as we're talking about this because it's a, I feel like it's fitting. Um, so honestly, it's, it's a mixture of all of the above. Um, when I first started working with lots of these fruits, um, I spend a huge amount of time on their spec sheet and spend a huge amount of time of how much sugar they contained. So obviously when you're making these beers, one of the most important things is to make sure they ferment out. Um, I know in America you guys do think things a bit differently, um, but here, like, there's no cold, cold. There's no. Cold, I know. I'm just saying. I, I've I've heard the stories. I, I've seen the Instagrams of the exploding um, cans and like keep, keep cold and all that sort sort of stuff. Here, there's no cold chain distribution, um, so I have to expect my beer to sit on a warmer shelf. For, for at 22, 23 degrees Celsius and be okay. Um, so, I mean, it's one of the things I have to work on when I'm working with, with fruit sours is making sure that the yeast has enough contact time in order to be able to really, really munch down on those sugars, really. What form do you tend to use fruit in? Are you using puree? Are you Depends. using juice concentrate? Are you using whole fruit? Uh, and does that vary between or by based on which fruit you're talking about? Um, yes, and it depends on availability. So, so some fruits are better on expressing themselves than others, um, and some you may use in combination with an essence, for example. Like I'm not a big fan of essences. It's not something that I choose to brew with. It's not something that I I, I choose to put in, in my beers. But a really good example is like blueberry, for example. Um, Blueberry looks fantastic when you're working with it. If you get a, a blueberry um, puree, for example, and you add that in the tail end of fermentation, it will look fantastic. It will not smell like blueberry at all, at all. So in order to overcome that, you probably do have to add an aroma in there as well in, in, in order to work um, with that particular fruit. I'm not a huge a fan of that. So um, my dissertation when I was at uni was, um, uh, it sounds really silly but it was um the concentration of fruit juices right and it sounds like really silly and really basic but it's very complicated in how they make um 
how they make concentrate fruit juice and how they remove aromas from uh, from fruits because they are so volatile and they dissipate so easily um and the different tricks they use etc etc it's not something that I, i choose to work with if i can avoid it um the so i like to work with fruits that are very expressive one of them is raspberry obviously that's incredibly expressive and how much raspberry to dose that's something that you can probably talk talk to your friends talk talk to the brewers talk to have a look at different beers you like but nothing really trumps personal experience and doing it on a homebrew scale and seeing how it presents itself and the other thing is by physically just trying it seeing what happens like you're working with it on a special try it but do it in a way where there's a window to fix it if you do it wrong um i think is important um so kind of dose day by day if that makes sense um so i i do a, a lot of that um working with passion fruit is one when you say that what is what is that process what does that process look like then if you are adding and then adding again are yeah. you just pumping into you know your your conical fermenter as it's fermenting because you know clearly you want still some active yeast in there to to ferment this back out um so i'm I'm talking a few points from end of fermentation that's when i dose my fruit so i'm talking maybe two or three points so i've still got activity in the beer um but i'm not producing like bucket loads of, of like co2 um, and that's when i tend to add um, and then if you catch it the next day, so, so basically ha- have a taste of it before, make sure you take your pHs, your gravities, your, all, all the tests you need to do. Um, and then, then the next day when, when you get to it, chances are it will probably be on the very tail end of fermentation again, right? Have a taste of it. If it's not dose enough, give it a mix. If it still doesn't taste like there's enough fruit in it, add some more. So, um, and you you can do that on a bag by bag basis. And it depends on it depends it depends obviously on how much time you have. Um, obviously, sometimes obviously in a commercial brewery we all have deadlines. Um, but especially when you're working with new fruit, I think finding where their where their natural zone is, where mm, that tastes like raspberry. Um, uh that's ki- that's kind of a sweet spot where you don't want to add too much because you want to save money commercially we all know raspberries not cheap um passion fruit incredibly expensive um but also like you need that fruit to express itself um so i'm I pretty much have a pretty solid um uh, a pretty solid like dosing fruit uh, te- technique i don't really vary from that much but the tricky thing is always working with new fruits so i worked with um damson for the first time on a on a kind of kettle sour base and just an absolutely incredibly tricky to get right because damson i don't know if you've had a lot of damson before i'm not familiar with that what is damson it's like a dark plum it's similar to plum but it's not Mm. as expressive as a plum um so in itself it's just not very tart it's not a very tart fruit but it's very you get lots of like it's it's very very british actually <laughs> you get lots of dams and jam and um yeah it's essentially like a teeny weeny little purple tiny plum basically i'm sure lots of people in the uk will be like that's not what a damson is but i think that explains it pretty well um between a plum and a blueberry yeah okay that, that that's probably better um but it's not very tart at all but it's very flavorsome but not very tart so it's how do you work with this particular fruit that you want to get the flavor but you know you're not going to get a huge amount of acidity and um with with that one and i held it back from release when it, it was due to be released and i was like guys this is not taste this is not this is not good enough um so with that we did a lot of because i had a certain amount of damson and i was going to use damson for something else and something else and i just kept tasting it like no it needs more no it needs more no it needs more until until i i have that fruit really expressing itself um the other one's really hard um hibiscus um i don't know if you've worked with it before not personally but i have some brewer friends who are huge fanatics 
so so in terms of so my family are from uh, the Caribbean right? a place called Trinidad and Tobago and um, there's a very popular drink called sorrel and, and sorrel and hibiscus are pretty much the same thing well they are the same thing and in different part, parts of the world you see that particular flower being called different things so um Lots of people from the Caribbean community, if you say you've made something with sorrel, that is like, oh my God, I must get my hands on it, basically. So um, so we have lots of sorrel in the brewery and um, I've only ever drank it kind of with my families, with my relatives, um, with a load of sugar in it. It's incredibly, incredibly sweet. And it's not naturally so. Literally spoonfuls of sugar are added to this, to, to this sorrel drink. So to work with this flower that I know, I know very well, my family knows very well, my family's family knows very well, and not be able to use sugar is, is, is incredibly challenging. And I learned some things about it. Like it's, in, it's insanely tart. It's tart in a way that's quite incredible. And it's tart in a very different way to a lactic sourness. It's a very different way um, to lots of other kinds of sourness but it's it's incredibly hard to work with it's also a natural indicator so if anyone wants to work with hibiscus what happens is when you caustic the tank um, afterwards it goes lots and lots of uh, funny colors which is really cool but yeah no, I mean I, th- I think with all sure, these with things an, it's with an ingredient error. like that yeah there's a chance of astringency you know that it, it can take on a kind of tea-like tannic character absolutely um, Absolutely, and and also working with that as well, because it, because if you add too much, you're exactly right. You you get this like tannic quality, which is too far, which is too far. And I I mean I I always say when working with any fruit, work with it on its own, and just see and just see how how it behaves, see how it performs before just blending it with anything else. Um, so the one I'm drinking right now, so this is a combination of um, raspberry, blackcurrant and sorrel. Um, and this is something like I make raspberry ghosts, I make blackcurrant ghosts, I've made um, hibiscus saisons or sorrel saisons. Like I've worked with the fruits for years on their own before I'm brave enough to know, okay, well, I'm going to get this quality from that, I'm going to get that quality from that. Um, but with all these things, I'm a massive, massive fan of just have a go. Just do it and see what happens. You, you can always fix it mid, mid ferment or late ferment. <laughs> you can always fix it. Sure, sure. Well, let's uh, let's zoom out a little bit here as we as we finish and talk about what uh, the future holds for Wildcard and what uh, the future holds for you. What are the what's on the horizon? What where do you see the brewery going, and uh, what are you most excited about in the short term and long term? Oh, so lots has been happening at the brewery. So we were lucky enough to win. Um, we were lucky enough to win a few, uh, well, a number of awards recently. So we won the we won a gold in the in the European Beer Challenge um, for in the New England category. So New England IPA. So across, like you can imagine across Europe, like that's like that's really cool. And um, and but even cooler than that was our cuvee saison won a silver, and you can imagine European beer challenge. It's full of all the Belgian brewers, so for that, that is like, it's like pinnacle. Um, uh, we have got our barrel store, which is our site, um, the other side of Walthamstow, and it's got our barrel wall up, and it's all filled full of full of lots of lovely beer, which we um, uh, we put in. A huge difficulty about two weeks ago because um, we, we we took the barrels out, we emptied them, we've bottled them, we've refilled them, we've um, put them up. But trying to get up lots of barrels that have actual beer in it in a certain order up on a wall in a live bar that's a <laughs> that's a challenge. Um, so I, I I don't know if you've seen my show Beer Masters. I have not watched the show, but uh, it's on my Amazon. I guess I am an Amazon member, so I avoided it for so long to try to <laughs> stick with local business, and I did eventually cave. I still I still do have that membership. Well, I'm going to tell everyone listening to the podcast, please watch Amazon Prime's Beer Masters, a homebrew competition show, and, and please help a girl out. I need my viewing figures to be, to be decent, so... <laughs> And please review it and say nice things. Um, but that's just a show uh, where we travel around Europe and lots of home. It's a home brewing competition, essentially. Um, 
So please watch that. And um, obviously the book is coming out in the US soon. So I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to hear what all the home brewers and the professional brewers um, all think about that. Uh, hopefully, it, I think my biggest goal for the book was I want to make a book that's useful and that's worth being on a brewer's shelf. Um, so I've spent a lot of time talking about like off flavors and why they happen and not only why they happen, how to fix them if they happen. Because I know us like professionally, that's what we do all the time is you taste things all the time and there may be a problem here. There may be a problem there. As you said, it's all problem solving. And it's about like, what do I physically do when this happens? I don't want to talk verbatim. I don't want to talk um, theoretic. Well, I do want to talk theoretically, but I, I want to know like tomorrow, like what do I do? Um, so, I mean, I've spent a lot of time talking about that in the book. So hopefully it's worthy of a place in, um, in, in Brewer's Shelves, I think, was the plan. It's a, it's a beautifully constructed book and, uh, you know, full of high quality content that everyone, everyone should go out and buy, of course. And on that <laughs> note, I think, I think we should uh, bring this to a close. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions. BSG and RAR Malting Company are the home of fossil-free malt. Get reliable supply for your fruit beers with Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends. Arrived mobile point-of-sale powers places with personality and put SS Brutex advances to work in your brew house. Of course, your magazine subscription directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast each week. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. Let us know that this content matters to you. And then of course, go out and buy Jaga's book. Jaga, if people wanna learn more about you, what you do, where to find your book, all of these other things, Wildcard Brewery, where do they find you uh, out there on the internet and in real life? Um, so on the internet, so I'm on all the socials. So at Jagerwise and at Wildcard Brewery on, on across all socials as well. Um, yeah, and our website, the usual places. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, I appreciate you talking with me about brewing today on the podcast. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.